Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The Anwa Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and we are doing a special unplanned episode to talk with Lanny Cass. And if you may remember, Lanny came on previously, but Lanny's background, she's born in Poland, grew up in Israel. Uh, she's a prior, you know, she spent a very long career in the United States. She's a prior military officer, served as a special advisor to the Air Force Chief of Staff, served as a special advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. She's been a corporate executive, and she's very familiar with what is going on in Israel right now. So we asked her to come on the show uh, yesterday, and she agreed to come on so that we could do this special issue to help our listeners understand exactly what's going on in Israel. So thanks for joining us, Lanny. Thank you, Adam. So can we start, let's just ask sort of the five, the who, what, when, where, why, and how. So Israel is under attack. So who is attacking Israel? So on October 7, 50 years and a day after the October 1973 war, Hamas, which is a terror organization in control of the Gaza Strip, uh, carried out a devastating surprise attack on Israel, basically stunning Israel just like Egypt and Syria did in 1973. The deference, of course, is that in 1973, the attack was on the military with the IDF being able to respond. On Saturday, the attack was on the civilian population. And I think by now everybody is familiar with the size, scope, and brutality of of that massacre. Um, This is worse than 9-11 proportionately to the size of the population. This is about 35,000 people being killed on a single day. So this is a horrific event. Um, And and quite frankly, everybody is trying to kind of wrap their heads around it. Seemingly unprovoked, seemingly unexpected. As a matter of fact, uh, the National Security Advisor just last week said the Middle East has been quieter than in the last two years, which was sort of correct. Israel allowed 
uh, Palestinian workers from Gaza to cross into Israel for jobs, for medical treatment, etc. Um, obviously, now Israel is laying siege to Gaza, so the border crossings are closed. So we know it was Hamas. Can you give us, you know, we've heard some, I guess, some evidence would seem to support that Iran played a major role, that there was Hezbollah. So Hamas is historically been a terror organization. They run, they are the government of the Gaza Strip. And it appears that Hezbollah and Hamas were working together with the support of Al-Quds, the Iranian sort of terror force, and that there was Iranian IRGC support, perhaps weapons, planning, information. So that's the who and the we the what happened. We've seen that, you know, it was attacks, right. paragliders. It was, you know, by via boat. It was, you know, it was rockets. It was hundreds, if not more than a thousand fighters were just mowing down people right. at music festivals at, you know, on the streets, they were everywhere. And that's, is there more to the what happened than what I've just said? No, I mean, you're pretty much describing it. Uh, it seems to me that what is very difficult for Americans to understand is that while always bordered by enemies, Israel has proper has never been invaded. It has been on Saturday. And that is kind of the shock value of this particular event. You ask what Hamas is. Hamas is a terrorist organization recognized as designated as a terrorist organization by the United States and our European allies. It is in control of the Gaza Strip which is a narrow strip of land about twice the size of the District of Columbia, kind of to put a proportion uh, on it in terms of size, but it's populated by over 2 million people. The Gaza Strip has been controlled by Egypt till 1967, taken by Israel, um, as part of the peace accords, the Camp David peace accords with Egypt, Israel offered to return Gaza to Egypt. Egypt said, no, thank you, not interested in that hornet's nest. That's a literal quote from uh, the Egyptian president at the time, uh, President Sadat. Um, so it has become, in the American mind, the, a part of the Palestinian territory. 
the other part of that being, of course, the West Bank, which until 1967 has been held by Jordan. And again, what Americans tend not to understand, there has never been a Palestinian state. So saying these are Palestinian territories, yeah, the population is Palestinian, but it is a base of a terrorist organization. So picture ISIS in control of sizable territory. Hamas, contrary to the Palestinian Authority, never even paid lip service to a two-state solution, meaning a Palestinian state living alongside Israel um, per the Oslo Accords of 1993. I'm so, giving you a chance to jump in. Well, one of the things that you know, I've I've heard like here in the U.S. where there have been these protests back and forth, where there's pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian, and one of the things you hear them chanting is "Free Palestine from the river to the sea," right? Which would essentially be the Jordan River, correct? All the way to the sea, which would mean that you would have to ex to destroy the state of Israel Correct. and and expel all Jews from, from Israel. Or kill them. And, and so it was an instant preview. What we have seen since Saturday is really what's beneath that slogan from the river to the sea, meaning and, and Hamas has been very explicit with that stated objective of destroying Israel and completing the mission that Hitler did not get a chance to finish. So this is not, you know, um, an imaginary slogan. This is a true statement of purpose and mission. Yeah, so now, I'm people not... Who Oh, sorry, people who repeat it probably have never looked at the map. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like for for those Americans who are uninitiated to, you know, exactly what this means geographically, historically, and otherwise, it's a pretty... I don't think they really... Maybe they do, but it would seem that they don't quite understand what they're advocating and just the, the, the consequences of what they would be advocating. And it's almost like the, it's a cause celeb to advocate for, because they have a mis, a misunderstanding for perhaps if they had spent more time in Israel, understood the lay of the land, perhaps they would, you know, take a different view, but Maybe for many Americans who aren't, you know, never spent time there and aren't familiar with the country, it's okay to sort of do this kind of stuff. But I, I don't think they really understand exactly what they're advocating. Well, ignorance is one explanation. Uh, the other explanation is just sheer animosity. 
And, you know, I, I don't want to ascribe blame. The president just came and, and unequivocally supported Israel. I don't think anyone can draw any moral equivalence. Uh, I mean, I personally cannot look at the videos posted online. But these days, you see unspeakable brutality posted online, um, beheading children, uh, slashing stomachs of pregnant women. I mean, this is unspeakable brutality that even ISIS um, would recoil against. And you have 30 student organizations at Harvard, you know, supporting this. So it, it seems to me it's pretty binary. There is no moral equivalence and, and there is no room for equivocation. Yeah, so we've we've talked about the who, we've talked about sort of what happened, we know when it happened, and just in terms of the when, is there still, are we now fully, does Israel have everything under its control and they're now on the offensive, or are there still rockets being launched into Israel, fighters still out shooting or has that already been, all of that been, it's has the not, It's not over, Adam. It's not over by any stretch. And I think this is the other thing that people don't understand. Once you infiltrate into Israel, it's very easy to hide because people look exactly the same. They dress the same. A lot of Israelis speak Arabic. A lot of Arabs speak Hebrew. So uh, blending in, having infiltrated um, without Israel's ability to stop them on Saturday, and you don't know how many sleeper cells were already in Israel. Um, the fact that it took the IDF till this morning to declare that the border towns that were taken are clear of infiltrants. Um, I'm not sure they fully have a handle on the situation. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I wonder, so that I guess we, if we move to the next question, which would be why? That that's one of the questions I've I think I probably have the least good understanding of is why would Hamas do this and why now? That's the million dollar question, you know, the sixty-four thousand adjusted for inflation. Why is not surprising. I mean, this is what the organization exists for. You know, in the background that I was trying to give, um, the Palestinian Authority, with whom Israel has been negotiating within the Oslo process, the U.S. orchestrated peace process, um, the Palestinian Authority has been toppled by Hamas in Gaza in 2007. 
after Israel withdrew unilaterally from the Strip in 2005. So there is no Israeli occupation or settlements or anything within Gaza. There was a military coup on the part of Hamas. They kicked out the Palestinian Authority. So the Palestinian Authority exists in the West Bank, headquartered in Ramallah. But Hamas is in control, in exclusive control of Gaza. There are even more militant splinter organizations like uh, Palestinian Jihad, um, their branches of ISIS and Al-Qaeda have been for a while. I think the better question is, why now? Yeah, so it, why now? I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Several reasons. One, and probably the most strategic was the Middle East was about to be transformed um, with negotiations in high gear between Israel and Saudi Arabia for normalization, which would have fundamentally transformed the Middle East. Of course, Iran did not want that to happen. So to the extent and again, it's tough to say because there is no smoking gun at this point. But my sense, my assessment would be uh, Hamas could not possibly pull it off on its own. I mean, this is pretty sophisticated. It's an operation that had to be prepared and rehearsed for months. Um you have internal um, instability in Israel. You had demonstrations against the government. Israel seemed fractured. So Hamas was definitely exploiting a moment of weakness. Um, you know, you saw the demonstrations in Israel um, against judicial reform on the part of the current government, which is more right-wing than any government Israel has, in my memory. Uh, there were tensions on the West Bank. Israel's attention was clearly diverted. So to orchestrate a surprise attack, you wait for your opponent to be distracted and weak, and Israel was both. So Israel is about the size of the state of New Jersey, correct? About. And for, you know, we said that the Gaza Strip's about twice the size of D.C. And then, of course, the West Bank is, you know, further north and east. Further of, north and east. And, you know, it's, uh, what, a, a third of the state of Israel right now is a, is the West Bank. And so for the population in Israel proper, it's, what, six to eight million Jews? About, yes. 
and then it's about what two to three million uh, Palestinians Arabs. who are Israeli citizens. That's why I I made note of sleeper cells. We don't know the extent of the penetration yet. And again, for years, the borders with Gaza have been open, periodically allowing people transit, food, etc. Gaza is controlled on two sides, by Israel on one side, by Egypt on the other side, and then open to the water. It could have been Singapore. Unfortunately, it chose a very different path. The Palestinian population is a highly educated population. As I said, it could have been Singapore, despite the fairly small um, territorial size. It has always been an issue of how do you establish a Palestinian state side by side with Israel where there is no territorial contiguity between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And there were a zillion of creative solutions of overland bridge, you know, kind of yeah, like of a road that or... portion of Israel, which happens to be the widest at that point, you know, and by widest, I mean, it's less than 30 miles from the water to the border with Jordan. It's less than nine miles at the narrowest point. Tel Aviv is an hour and 10 minutes drive from Gaza. So, I mean, I don't think people have a good notion of the scale and proportions that we are talking about. Yeah. And, you know, what's, as as I read the history, it seems to me part of Iran's and I, you sort of touched on this, part of Iran's desire for this to happen now is Israel has been really making positive strides to settle any and all differences. And right. Israel has been working very closely with the Gulf states, right. with most of the Arab world. And so for, if a, long Saudi, for a long time and, in you know, when Saudi Arabian oil fields were attacked, what most people don't realize is they called the Israelis to come help defend those. And so for Saudi Arabia to, you know, come and reach an agreement with the Israelis to settle their differences, that's really bad for Iran. Yes. And I, yes. I sort of wonder for the Palestinians, because I'll be honest with you, I talked to a a Palestinian, you know, an American born in the U.S., but one father, the father was born and grew up in Palestine, you know, in, uh, I think, I'm I'm not sure whether it was the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, 
and then the mother was an American. And they were going to go out to dinner last night to celebrate the attacks. Doesn't surprise me one little bit. And I I wonder at what point do Palestinians realize that they have been that that they have been you know instigated that the pot has been stirred to keep them at odds with Israel because it's often historically been useful for the autocrats that ran countries to sure. always point to the Palestinian problem as a way to point the finger away from their own corruption their own theft, their own poor management of their countries. And so the Palestinians have always been this useful, well, don't don't worry about what we're doing. Look at how bad the Israelis right. are to the Palestinians. And the Palestinians, from what I can tell, have not sort of caught on that they're being used. Um, I'm not sure they haven't caught on that they're being used, but they you have to say they don't mind being used. Part of the conversations, negotiations with Saudi Arabia involved addressing the Palestinian issue. Nobody knows the contours of what was exactly discussed. Peace has been reached between Israel and Egypt. Uh, There is a peace treaty with Jordan. Everybody left the Palestinian issue till later. And the later never came. So I recognize there is a major issue that needs to be solved. But the solution from the river to the sea is obviously not a solution unless you want to see instant replay of what you've seen on Saturday. So now that we, you know, we we sort of know what's going on and why and who we know all that. So for the, for the IDF, the Israeli defense forces, now they're taking to the offensive. What? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. The offensive will come on the ground. What you're seeing right now is massive retaliatory strikes, which, again, is not uncommon. But I believe what you're going to see is a ground incursion, something that Israel has not wanted to do, something that is extremely costly because it's very densely populated. So it's costly for both sides. Um, But given the stated political objective of dismantling Hamas, the only way you can do it is on the ground. So you and I are women, we understand what can be done from the air. And everything that's being done from the, 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 everything that can be done from the air is being done. 
but the ground invasion has not started. And so uh, do you foresee this ground invasion going? So the, the, the West Bank is not the problem. We're, we're focused uh, right on... now. See, right now it's quiet. If you truly want to attack Israel from all directions at once, you could because you have the West Bank to the east. You have Lebanon and Hezbollah in, to the north in Syria and Lebanon. And of course, you have the Palestinian population within Israel proper. And by Israel proper, I mean the Green Line uh, pre-1967. Yeah. And it's really important to understand that the attacks on Saturday were not against any disputed territory. There are no settlements there. This is Israel proper within its internationally recognized borders. So do you foresee when the offensive happens then that what we'll see are Israeli ground forces and armor moving into the Gaza Strip Yes, and and literally hunting uh, Hamas to eliminate Hamas as as an entity. Well, the stated political objective given to the IDF by the Israeli government, by the National Command Authority, to use American lingo, is dismantle. Hamas, so they'll never be able to do that again. Not very different from the objective given to the U.S. military after 9-11. Yeah. Dismantle Al-Qaeda. How do you do it? You can destroy infrastructure from the air, but to truly disable a functioning terrorist organization which has been governing a compliant population for that long, you have to go on the ground. And that's going to be ugly and it's going to be bloody. And I wouldn't be surprised if public opinion in the United States shifts. Because before too long, you're going to see Palestinian babies dead. Yeah. Because Hamas has built an entire infrastructure underground, under civilian housing um, facilities. It's not, you know, the buildings that you're seeing toppled may be 
some elements of Hamas. Most of Hamas is underground. And the only way you're going to get at it is by going on the ground. Yeah. It's, it's reminds me of, you know, what the, what U S forces had to do in Vietnam where they had to go to the tunnel, to the, you know, the Viet Cong's tunnel complexes and, you literally had guys crawling through them. Right, right. And, you know, in your initial questions, how did all this equipment get into Gaza? So there are underground tunnels, huge network of underground tunnels going from Gaza into Egypt. So Egypt, which has a peace treaty with Israel, is by definition complicit in it by allowing that amount of equipment to come into Gaza. It obviously didn't come from the Israeli side. Some of it could have been smuggled by sea, but the Israeli Navy is pretty good at patrolling the sea. Now, you know, no blockade is 100%, but you're talking about huge quantities. I mean, look at the number of missiles already fired. You're talking in the thousands. Where where did it all come from? I mean, it's not locally manufactured. Some is, because some rockets, but they are rockets. They're not missiles. They small, unguided, they effectively RPGs on steroids. So for President al-Sisi of Egypt, I don't gather, and you probably know this better than me, I don't gather this that he's in the business of supporting Hamas. I mean, he's, no. he's, he's cracked down Not on officially. the Muslim. Yeah. I mean, this, this creates more trouble for him. It doesn't really help him. And he's been trying to, you know, stabilize Egypt, grow the economy. Right. So this is a problem for him. Well, and, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood, which spawned Hamas, originated in Egypt in the 1920s, it is the organization that assassinated President Sadat because he concluded the Camp David Accords with Israel. So by all means, uh, the Islamic Brotherhood is a threat to Egypt. But smuggling this level could not have happened without somebody turning a blind eye. And and I'm not saying that President Sisi sponsored that by any stretch of the imagination. But somebody had to allow it to happen. Yeah. And so you could, this weaponry, the materials to build the capabilities could have originated in Iran and been brought. Had to, well, there are several places that you can 
think it has originated, Afghanistan being one of them. I mean, we left a lot of stuff in Afghanistan. That would be, if if it comes back that this equipment was U.S. remainder equipment that was left in Afghanistan, that will be a very bad thing. Well, so let, I hope that's not the case. You have to keep that as a, as a possibility. Because otherwise, where did the, this equipment come from? Yeah. Iran doesn't have a border with Gaza, or Israel for that matter. Yeah. So where does that come from? It comes overland to Syria, but that's, again, quite a distance to get it to the south. Yeah. Yeah. So let let me ask you, what was the what do you think Hamas was hoping to achieve? Exactly what it has achieved. It's an incredible humiliation and shock to Israel. It's a creation of a perception of vulnerability that Israel has not experienced since 1948. Remember, Israel was created as a refuge for Jews after the Holocaust, where six million people were murdered, exterminated, for lack of a better term. Israel has always been seen and seen itself as the only safe place for Jews to be at. That's why I draw the sharp distinction between 73, which was military on military, and this terrorist attack, which was exclusively and deliberately targeted at unarmed civilians. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Yeah. So as we as we wrap up our discussion, what do you think it's really important for NucleCast listeners? To, to keep in mind. And and let me ask you one thing, you know, we are a, a show that's focused on nuclear. Do you think that this is a point where, you know, assuming Israel has nuclear weapons, as most believe? No comment. Do you think that, um, I wonder how serious Israel gets with its, um, becoming assertive and demonstrating that it will no longer, you know, accept this kind of, you know, because it has been humiliated. It has been. Yes. And I, I wonder how it might change its strategic posture and if it might become more assertive. 
and, and it will definitely become more assorted. I would not speculate about nuclear employment, certainly not in a situation like this. Now, if it becomes clear that Iran has a nuclear capability, if it becomes clear that Iran was behind it, it's a death and ball game. Yeah. Not in this situation. It's sort of like America's nuclear capability did not even come into play after 9-11. This sure. is a conventional issue. Again, Israel has never officially confirmed that it has nuclear capability. Right. With that, everybody above the age of seven in Israel knows that that capability exists. But that capability would never be used in a situation which is not an existential threat to Israel. Yeah, see, that's the thing that that I don't think Americans... What's existential to us in the United States... That there is nothing threat. existential to the United States, truly. Yeah. Except thermonuclear war with Russia. Yeah. And for Israel, though, I mean, when you've got unfriendly, you know, the Syrians, I mean, the huge, you know, Hezbollah and the Palestinian camps in Lebanon, which have, you know, very large amounts of angry people who, you know, have been pulled into Hezbollah and are now willing fighters. You know, you, you know, if you lost the Golan Heights, if, you know, Jordan is relatively friendly, but I mean, Jordan, but remember Jordan has a problem in the sense that half of its population is Palestinian. Yeah. And the king of Jordan is holding to power, but he might face an internal uprising as well. So this has unleashed a potential avalanche that can fundamentally transform the Middle East as we know it. Yeah. Because Palestinians are, have reshaped the politics and the dynamics in Lebanon, in Jordan, you know, the the Egyptians are trying not to fall prey to that problem as well. And, well, the Egyptians don't have a large Palestinian population. Jordan does. Yeah. So what is it, you know, as as we wrap up? What are the main things that you think an American audience needs to understand about what's going on in Israel right now? I think the main thing that people need to understand is that this is Israel's 9-11. And Israel will retaliate just like the United States retaliated after 9-11. And it's going to be ugly. And people are going to forget the pictures that we're seeing right now 
and are going to be focused on the destruction in Gaza, which is inevitable. So what I would ask is keep in mind the action and reaction. And second, when you support from the river to the sea, understand what you are supporting because you are supporting the extermination of the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. My mother and grandmother survived Auschwitz. So it's within a generation. It's not ancient history. It's within a generation. And this is very foremost in every Israeli's mind. The fact that you cannot be safe in your house, that you cannot protect your children, your babies, this is something, I guess what I would ask every American is put yourself in that situation. And most of us cannot imagine that because we do not face a threat like that. Yeah. Most Americans also cannot understand the depth of the animosity. You know, why don't they just get along? You know, figure it out, let's solve the problem. Well, at essence, and you gave an excellent example of somebody who lives in the United States, right, is born in the United States, and they went to celebrate. Celebrate what? The, the killing of a thousand of innocent people in their houses? The killing of kids at a music festival? I mean, it's, you know, incomprehensible. But on the other hand, they were celebrating in the West Bank after 9-11 as well. Yeah, it's a... Uh... You know, it's a sad time. It's an unfortunate yes. time. And for many Americans, as we sit, you know, in, in our comfort, in our nice yeah. homes, and in our, I mean, relatively safe neighborhoods, and it's uh, something that I, you know, for me, having spent a good bit of time in Israel, you just see how small the distances are. And you can certainly understand how you can't feel safe when that insecurity is so close. You know, it's just over a wall or just over a fence. Right, right. And you see, Israel has always attempted to give a sense of normalcy to its citizens. I mean, I have friends, neighbors saying, why would you have a music festival, you know, three miles from the border? Because everything is three miles from the border. Yeah. I mean, people just have no concept of how close it all is. And if people cannot feel safe in their own houses, 
That goes against the reason for being of the state of Israel. It is, it has been established to provide safety and security for people who have been persecuted and killed, persecuted, I mean, and killed for 2,000 years. And within 24 hours, that vision of safety and invulnerability has vanished. And I think, to me, that's the biggest takeaway. Uh, Adam, let me say one thing that I did not mention, and that's the hostages. Oh, yeah, we had, we didn't talk about that. That makes the situation absolutely unique. Yes. Because recovering hostages is a core value for Israel. Remember when Hamas kidnapped one soldier and held him for five years, Israel released a thousand Hamas prisoners from jail in exchange for that one soldier. They are currently holding hundreds. We don't even know for sure. Nobody knows how many. Some of them are Americans and they threaten to execute them. That changes the situation fundamentally. And, you know, this is not something that Israel had to grapple with until now. You know, as we sort of go a little longer than we had initially thought, you bring up a a good point because we're, you know, we're doing this podcast sort of, you know, on the fly as we try to respond and help folks understand. And so let's, instead of ending the podcast, let's talk for a minute about this issue of hostages. And one of the questions, you know, I've seen that there have been not only, there have been Brits killed, there have been Thais killed, there there have been Canadians killed, there are Americans killed, there are hostages from, a number of all countries over. from all over. And, you know, I've read that Hamas has said that for every house the Israelis destroy, they'll execute one of the hostages. And we've seen that they've beheaded Israeli soldiers that were captured. But they beheaded babies. Yeah, I, I mean... So these hostages are by no means safe. Initially, no. I sort of, I sort of wondered, are they looking to do exchanges? So for whatever, oh, no. yeah, you know, I thought, well, maybe those who are captured, those Hamas fighters who are captured, will be exchanged for no, no. This is purely human shields. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, the point that you mentioned almost casually kind of goes to the nature of Israel, which is not widely understood. It's a vibrant culture. It's a very tolerant, vibrant society, very accepting. You know, tourist industry is 
thriving. That's why you have such numbers of people from all over the world who are there either visiting or walking or studying or doing whatever, going to a music festival. The perception that Israel is 100% Jewish is simply inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... And so how do you think Israel will deal with these, I mean, hundreds of hostages? Honestly, I don't know. It's an unprecedented situation. And the fact that the hostages are civilians, predominantly civilians, I mean, we don't really know, but there are reports that some are military. I don't think it's going to stop or in any way blunt the force of the Israeli counterattack. I truly don't think so. But I don't know. We are dealing in an unprecedented situation that neither Israel nor the United States have ever dealt with. Now, Israel has a good history of amazing hostage rescues, like Entebbe, but it's a very different set of circumstances. Do you think that, you know, hostage rescue teams, Delta, special forces from the United States, from, you know, the United Kingdom, from other places are going to be participating with Israeli forces to try to, you know, rescue these hostages, to, to work together to, for retribution um, I doubt it, Adam. I, I strongly doubt it because coordinating something like that on the fly is very, very difficult. Um, of the countries that you named, Israel has the most experienced hostage rescue force. The one time that Israel allowed another country to try to rescue its hostages was in during the Olympics in Munich. And, and I believe the doctrine of never again applies here in spades because all the hostages were killed. Now, granted, this was on German territory, so Israel had no choice. I, I don't see cooperation beyond planning, yeah. sharing of expertise, but not operational on the ground. And I don't think Hamas is stupid enough to separate American hostages from Israeli hostages, from German sure. hostages, from British hostages. I, I, I simply don't think so. Although... Uh, that's what was done um, in Entebbe. They separated Jews from non-Jews. 
just like during the Holocaust. You know, it's not a trivial matter that the prime minister's older brother was killed leading the Antebarade. Little known fact. He is actually the only casualty of that raid. Yeah. So, you know, those sentiments run very, very deep. But the extent to which it's going to affect operations, it's an uncharted territory. I I couldn't begin to tell you how that comes into military planning right now. Yeah, it just, it seems awfully foolish on the part of Hamas to kill so many foreign nationals that were in Israel because all it does is, you know, it, you know, instead of drawing any support, you now have the governments of all of these countries staunchly supporting Israel. And, and, you know, now, now you've kidnapped their, not only did you kill their citizens, but now you're holding them hostage and they very well may be killed. And I just can't, you know, as I try to think, think like, you know, Hamas, to me, that just doesn't seem like a, a wise idea or a wise approach to things. you know, I mean, we we are all speculating here. I mean, it's very fresh. They grabbed people at random. I mean, they grabbed grandmothers in wheelchairs and children and babies to use as human shields. I don't think they checked anybody's passport as they were grabbing those hostages. So I don't think they deliberately planned to kidnap citizens of foreign countries. They might have. I don't know. But logically, it does not seem that that was a part of the plan. But it changes the calculus both for them and for the countries whose citizens are now in harm's way. Yeah. You know, especially the ones that can do something about it, like the United States. I mean, the president just said that he is sending experts to coordinate with the Israelis. Now, military-to-military cooperation between the U.S. military and the IDF is traditional and very strong. Right, right. You know that. I don't know if your listeners know that, but (laughs) it's, um, you know, it's traditional and ongoing. But hostage rescue tactics, techniques, and procedures are some of the secrets that each country holds most close. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny, it's funny that you, you say that because I've, one of the times I was working in Israel, I, I was doing some stuff with Shin Bet and they were giving some training and some demonstrations of some of their techniques. And, 
um, it was, I'll just say it was pretty impressive how they conduct operations. Well, unfortunately, it's an issue they've had to deal with for 75 years. You know, so it's a lot of really bloody experience, you know, earned in blood. Yeah. But again, I I think we would both be remiss not to address that issue, which to me is a fundamental change to the situation or fundamental distinction of this particular situation. You know, because rockets from Gaza into Israel, Israeli casualties on a small scale, and massive retaliation, that part is not new. What is new is the infiltration, the, the... murder of innocent civilians and the kidnapping of hostages. That part is the new ballgame here. Yeah. And that kind of needs to be emphasized. Yeah, for sure. And so as you know... I mean, think about it. If somebody walked into name a town, El Paso, Texas and murdered 35,000 Americans in a A similar proportion. That would be a similar proportion of the American population to what was killed by the Israeli. Right. Or any town in Vermont from Canada. I mean, that's what you need to think. And took hostages. You know, we don't have that sense of vulnerability of the enemy literally at the gate. True. Yeah. America geographically sits in no country sits in a better position than the U.S. does. And, and you know, people say our borders are open and vulnerable and, and you know. Yeah. But they're not quite as bad as what Israelis face. Yeah. You know, so, so far, nobody is crossing those borders with the intent of killing Americans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, only on At television shows we've sport, seen that. Not for, um, it was a crime spree. Yeah. But this was purely wanton murder. Yeah. I mean, there is no political objective in murdering a thousand innocent civilians. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would accomplish much in the way of the political objectives. Well, but you see, it has unified people like your American friend and rallied them to the cause. So what's the next thing? Well, they contribute to the Hamas Fund or to the Holy Land Foundation which is a genuine Hamas-supporting yeah. organization operating in the United States, yeah. supported by the Council on Islamic-American Relations. So this is real. This is not over there. This is over here. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a heavy situation. We'll yep. have to uh we'll have to keep an eye on it and if things change significantly, we'll have to come back and and talk about it again in the future. So Thank thanks you, for, Adam. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for Thank talking you. about this. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on a, a very different and unfortunate episode that we had hoped to never have. But hopefully this has provided uh, some insights into what's going on and, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, and how. And as we watch in the days and weeks ahead, you know, we can only hope and pray that things uh, turn out well and that there's as little loss of life as humanly possible. Joining you in that prayer, fully realizing there is going to be massive loss of life on both sides. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrent Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Chamberlain, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpton. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and following the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at 